so I got used to already applause when I come up here. <laughs> okay, there we go. <laughs> Thank you. I was actually not expecting that, so. <laughs> a couple, a month or so ago, a, a woman stood silently on the sidewalk. As many walked back and forth. She stood there praying in her head. Eventually, two police officers came up to her. Well, what are you doing? You're just standing here. Were you praying? They asked her. She admitted, yeah, at times she was. She's going in and out of prayer as she, as she stood there. They asked her to come down to the police station, and she said, well, I don't, I don't want to do that. They're like, well, then you're arrested. And they brought her there. Why? For the audacity to pray. At least the audacity to pray here. And where was this? Was it under the totalitarian Chinese Communist Party regime? No. Was it in one of the, Saudi Arabia or another Middle East country? No. It was in Great Britain. And as this woman stood and she prayed outside of the abortion clinic silently, making no noise, making no protest, yet she was arrested and condemned. And as Christians, we can see in, in many different avenues a, a growing hostility in various ways throughout the world. About 80% of all religious discrimination comes against Christians, whether it's being beheaded by ISIS, being thrown out of the public square, being fired or condemned for your beliefs. Or perhaps it's making national news for not wearing a pride jersey as your team warms up and being condemned by the elites. That happened just, what, this past week to one of our uh, Philadelphia Flyer. Now, it's not new that God's people face hostility to a, a culture that's opposed it's not new that there's, there's enemies of God's people who condemn our, our beliefs, our values. Having enemies is not new. Whether it's the world that scorns us, the devil that seeks to devour us, or even the flesh that seeks to compromise us. And it can happen in such a world that we are given to anxiety and fear and frustration. That we succumb to the, the pressures of this world either in compromise or just throwing it off and say, hey, what's the point? Why keep going? But in that, well, there, there is a word from God for his people. A hope that he wants us to hold on to. An assuring presence that he delivers to us. And if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 11, as we're continuing our, our series going through the life of Saul. If you, you know, were with us here the past couple weeks, we know that you know, the people desired and, and wanted a, a king. They asked Samuel, the, the leader of the nation at the time, the, the judge, to say, give us a king. And the Lord relented, and he gave them a king. And we know that, you know, Saul's first steps were not the, 
the greatest there, but, um, but yet, at the same time, we see the goodness of God in offering Saul in what's happening here. So we are going to be starting at verse 0. Yes, that's right, verse 0. Um, in your Bibles, if you, it may be in there or it may be hidden in a footnote or if it's an older Bible, it may not be there at all. Um, but you know, I think the, the general view of scholars is this probably is the part of the original text. However, it's not part of the, the Masoretic text, which is the, the basis of our, our normal translations. And it's not a huge deal whether it's there or not, but I think it gives a little bit of background, which will be interesting to read. So First uh, Samuel 11, verse 0 and following. So now Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, had been grievously oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites. Those are two of the tribes uh, east of the Jordan River. He would gouge out the right eye of each of them and would not grant Israel a deliverer. No one was left of the Israelites across the Jordan whose right eye Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, had not gouged out. But there were 7,000 men who had escaped from the Ammonites and entered Jabesh Gilead. Now Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and he besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, replied, I will make a treaty with you on, only on the condition that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you and bring disgrace upon Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. And if no one comes to rescue us, we'll surrender to you. And when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. And just then, Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen, and he asked, Well, what's going on with everyone? Why are they weeping? And they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, he cut them into pieces, and he sent them uh, sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is, what will be done, uh, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. And the terror of the Lord fell on the people. They came out together as one. And when Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000, and those of Judah, 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, Say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. And when the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we'll surrender to you and you can do it to us whatever you like. And the next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. And during the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites, slaughtered them until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. And the people then said to Samuel, Who was it that asked, Shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us, and we can put them to death. But Saul said, No one will be put to death today, for, the, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. As we've been hinting about the tragedy that would be Saul's life, well, tragedy doesn't come to someone who is the perpetual loser. Uh, Tragedy comes to the person who, well, has a fall from grace. Where we get a glimpse of what could be. 
what could be in this, the life of this individual. And no more clearly do we see what could have been in Saul's life than this passage here. It is perhaps one of the most uh, remarkable foretastes of the deliverance of the Messiah that is in the scriptures. It gives us a vivid picture of all that the Messiah will accomplish. And as Saul, as a little M Messiah, anointed by God to lead his people, he gives us, well, this vivid and glorious picture of the fullness of God's redemption. The promise waiting to be fulfilled by the one to come. But as we open up with the thing, we, we see, well, there is an oppressive tyrant. Nahash, the Ammonite, who threatens to you know, gouge out the right eye of everyone in the, in the region. And well, well, why does he do this? Why the right eye? Is it just to be sadistic? Is it just to... to to persecute the people? Uh, perhaps. But the reason he wants the right eye is because, well, the way that people would go to war. In their right hand, they'd hold the weapon. In their left hand, the shield that would cover their left eye. You cut out, you gouge out the right eye, it creates a people who are, who are battle blind, right? Or defenseless. There's nothing to protect them or there's no place to see. Nahash, the Ammonite king, he seeks to, to not only you know, subdue and subjugate in his oppressive tyranny, but he wants to keep them there with no hope for deliverance, to make a weakened people perpetually subject to his terror. But there's a deliverer. And we are not meant to read this as just, you know, one story of one victory. But we are meant to read this as part of, well, God's first installment of his messianic promises. And acutely, you know, if, if you're, you know, a little a Hebrew boy hearing this in, in your native tongue, which you, may be, you may recall, well, how this connects to, to previous promises. Starting in the garden. Starting in the garden where well, God creates man and woman and he puts them in this, in this garden. And, but what happens in Genesis 3? Well, the serpent comes in, deceives them. They eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they are cast out of there. But in that, when God comes and he, he punishes his people, he gives them hope. What's known as like, kind of like the first instance of the gospel. He talks about how, you know, in Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Right? And from there, the people of God have been looking for somebody to crush the head of the serpent, to deliver the people of God from its power. Now, you may not know, but why would people think of this? The word for serpent is Nahash. When they read about this, this terrible, oppressive king who's wreaking terror, they named serpent, named Nahash, what are they thinking of? Well, they're waiting for somebody to come, a deliverer to crush his head, a deliverer to, to take this power who seems too big 
who wants to subdue and subject and blind and destroy and devour God's people, well, they need a deliverer. And so in my despair, I take refuge in the, in the Messiah's promise. I take refuge in the promise of the one who's come, who breaks the head of the serpent, who crushes him, who subdues the subduer, who oppresses the oppressor, who's victorious over the victimizer. And Saul here is portrayed as a new Adam, Messiah 1.0, who crushes the head of the serpent. And in my, in my despair, I take refuge in the Messiah's promise, but in my weakness, I take refuge in the Messiah's wrath. This, uh, this whole saga is, is kind of written in what's known as a chiasm, which a chiasm is, is basically an ancient rhetorical structure to kind of like bind pieces together. And in there, you know, there's basically parallel elements that kind of work their way in and out. If you would put it up on the, on the screen, um, you know, we start with the king who oppresses and destroys, and Ammon who threatens, the Jabesh response that we will come out to you, the messenger's bad news, and Saul's inquiry and responses, and the spirit rushes, and we kind of see it working its way back with parallel elements. Saul's message and the response to it, the messenger's good news, Jabesh's response, we're going to come out to you. And then Amnon flees, Amnon flees, and the king who now delivers and preserves. And right there, smack dab in the middle, is this. The spirit rushes on Saul. The Spirit of God comes upon him, this Messiah 1.0, to become a deliverer. Let's read that text again. Look with me at verse 6. And when Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he what? He burned with anger. He burned with anger. That the Spirit's work in Saul's life first and foremost, produces an emotion that we oftentimes don't think is terribly godly. He burns with anger. Now, I want to be very clear as I begin to talk about, well, the wrath of God and his Messiah. And even some, the goodness of wrath and anger. That we don't take this in a way that's improper, that somehow that, you know, it gives a, a blank check to our worst impulses. Dallas Willard, who, you know, who, I, who, you know, this quote that I, I go back to again and again, that, you know, feelings make excellent servants, but terrible masters, and that includes anger. It's an excellent servant at times. And our problem and our discomfort with anger is so often that we, when, when we think of anger and people being angry, we see it oftentimes as, well, being a terrible master that drives them to lash out at every petty grievance. But this is not what we're talking about. This is a holy and righteous anger that sees deep and dark oppression and is righteously angry against it. And this, well, this in the Messiah 1.0 
is a very, very good thing. And this, in the hands of a holy God, is also a very, very good thing. And this is why the Spirit of God, as he comes upon him, he produces a holy and righteous anger. Now, as a, as a staff, as we meet together on Tuesdays and we've been going through prayers in the New Testament, we're kind of coming to the, the end of the series and we're going through the, some of the prayers of the, the saints and the, the martyred ones in the book of Revelation. And one of the things that, you know, I've noticed in doing this is, well, that the prayers of the saints in Revelation, when they see God's wrath and judgment and his anger poured out, they don't recoil from it the way that we do. No, no, no. It turns them to praise and to worship. They say, just and true are your ways, O Lord. And the martyred saints say, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, until you, until you let go of your, or let your wrath go? The church, the people of God, need to become way more comfortable with the wrath of God. And rejoice in his anger, because in his anger is your salvation. In his wrath is your rescue. There is, what is the alternative to a Christ who has wrath? Well, there's a, there's a problem with a wrathless God. Now, as I typed out those words on my, you know, Google Doc, it gave me those red little squiggly lines, you know, over wrathless. And I clicked on it, I'm like, it's, I think it's a word. Is it a word? I click on it, and it's a word, but it's just like Google thinking it knows better. They're like, don't you mean the problem with a wrathful God? That's the problem, right? No, Google, that's not the problem. The problem is a God devoid of wrath, devoid of anger against evil, a God who, who turns a blind eye to the oppression of, of his people or the oppression of people in general. For most of history, the offense of Christianity was not the idea that there was a God who, gave, who had wrath against sin and evil. The offense of Christianity was that there was a God who gave grace to sinners. But not today. However, when we're confronted with real evil, we demand judgment and wrath. How do I know? Well, in my mind, and I don't have the best mind or the best memory, but there's a name that I remembered even as I was preparing this sermon, a name of Brock Turner. Does that ring a bell to anybody? About eight years ago, Brock Turner, uh, he's a, a wealthy frat kid at Stanford who did a pretty heinous act. He was charged and convicted with three counts of felony sexual assault. And I don't want to go into the gory and, and grim details of his thing. And, it's, and his, uh, his offense is not what drew national headlines. That happens enough where it's not going to make national news. No, the, why I know the name is because of the aftermath of when he was convicted. Three counts. 
of despicable human behavior. And the judge gave him six months in prison. And he got out after three for good behavior. And it became national news because of the outrage of what happened when he was this man who did this despicable thing and was let off. And, and we all demanded wrath against him. We all demanded real, deserving punishment. No one was looking around saying, oh, that judge is, what a nice guy. I mean, he could have really just like ruined this guy's life. No, everyone knew at that moment, well, he, his life needed to be ruined. There needed to be consequences. And failure to do so was not a niceness. It is a devaluing of the victim. It is saying that what happened to her doesn't really matter all that much. There was rage at the judge who ended up being recalled, losing his position. Because when real evil happens, we demand justice. And the people of God take refuge in the Messiah's wrath. That he will not compromise with evil. He will not let it go on. And the oppressive forces that we face, whether it's a hostile world, the devil himself, or even the, the results of sin that we experience, like sickness and death, well, guess what? God has provided a Messiah who rages against such things. And like with Saul, his, his anger, his anger is your salvation. It was anger that drove Jesus to the cross after he, he's, you know, at the grave of Lazarus, trembling with anger. And yet right from then, he goes to the cross to die, to set the people free from this tyrannical force of death that rages over us. The goodness of a God who shows wrath. The goodness of a Messiah who rages. The second problem that we have with wrath that should not be is that we think that worshiping a wrathful God will create a vengeful, spiteful, bitter people. Those themselves prone to to violence and destruction. But really, it's the opposite. When evil happens, real evil, the only thing that's going to prevent a response in kind is knowing that there is a God who repays men for the things that they have done. You see your friends and your family murdered and raped and destroyed. What keeps you from going out and doing the same thing if a justice system won't do it for you? What keeps you from perpetuating the cycle? The only thing is knowing that there is a God who will repay men for evil. Miroslav Volv, the, uh, he's a Yale uh, theologian who grew up in Croatia and he experienced and saw the, the, the violence of the Balkans. And he, and he writes to, to people, he says, you know, the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. 
It takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. And in a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with the other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. What he's saying is that, that when you encounter real evil on the, you know, a, a land scorched in the blood of the innocent, that if you are going to have any hope of not turning to violence yourself, you have to believe that there is a God who has wrath. A God who says, vengeance is mine. A God who will, who will repay men for the things that they have done. And so the people of God take refuge in their Messiah's wrath. And they glorify God for it. So in my weakness, I take refuge in the Messiah's wrath. And in my, uh, in my despair... I take refuge in the Messiah's promise. And in my despair, I take refuge in the Messiah's redemption. Now, understanding the, the fullness of what's going on here requires a little bit more biblical knowledge than we, often, uh, than we often have. To whom did Saul's victory come? Who did he save? Well, a little city known as Jabesh-Gilead. And this story, this entire saga, is meant to, to map on to a, another story. At the end of the book of Judges, in Judges 19 to 21, which is kind of the, you know, our, our Bible separates Judges and, and Samuel with the book of Ruth. But, you know, in the Hebrew Bible, and I think canonically, we're, we're meant to read this as the, the next book in the series. And what happens in, in Judges 19 to 21, it's the darkest days of Israel's history where everyone's doing what's right with their own eyes and the veil is you know, torn off and we see the depths of their depravity. And we encounter a Levite whose concubine who had run away and he goes to Bethlehem to, to pick her up. And after being delayed a couple days, he decides, oh, it's time to go back home. And on his journey home, he, they realize he's not going to be able to get back all the way home, and they need to spend the night somewhere. He passes by the then pagan city of Jerusalem, and he, he goes on to, to Gibeah, the city of Saul, you know, where God's people are. He enters in the city looking for some hospitality, but no one gives him any aid, and he decides, well, I guess we're just going to have to spend the night in the open square. Until an old man comes by and he says, no, 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 you, you cannot do it. Come, stay in my house. You can't, you can't stay in the open square here. He relents and goes into the man's house. And that night, the mob, the men of Gibeah, come and begin pounding on the door, demanding that this man be sent out to them for him to be raped and brutalized. They could not be pleaded with. They could not be negotiated with. Ultimately, they just they take the concubine and throw her out. And the men all night long brutalize her. In the morning, she's dead. So the Levite takes her corpse home, cuts her into 12 pieces, where he sends her pieces to all of Israel, saying, this egregious thing has been done. And Israel, this is the, 
it gathers together as one and goes to war against Gibeah and really, well, all of Israel besides Benjamin who picked, you know, Gibeah is, is their, their people. Who, so, the, so it's all of Israel against the Benjaminites. And they're fighting and, you know, multiple battles and, you know, Israel loses their first few and then they, they finally win and they, and they bring some sort of justice what's going on. And then everyone's sitting around and they're saying, hey, did anybody not come out and fight with us? Who didn't? You know who didn't? Jabesh Gilead. They didn't. And Israel goes and enacts justice on them for their unwillingness to, to come out and fight. But what we see here, and this is why this is such a, a great picture of the Messiah's redemption, is because, well, you see the reversal in the stories here? Gibeah this place of shame that does the most horrendous act that draws all of Israel together to condemn it. And, but from there is where their salvation now comes. Jabesh Gilead, that was, well, they were the people who decided, hey, we don't need to bother with going out and, and fighting other people's battles and enacting justice. Who, who cares about that? We're, we're content just to live and let live. And yet now they are the ones who are being oppressed and they're the ones who are sending out and saying, hey, can you all please come help us? And the Messiah does. Admittedly, I can be a little bit, um, I can enjoy people suffering natural consequences to their actions maybe a little bit too much. Like when my child after being told a half dozen times to sit properly in her chair and then you know two minutes later she the whole chair tips over and she gets hurt it makes me a little bit happy or you know when one of my child is having a, a children is having a particularly ornery day and just you know whining and griping at her sisters and hitting them and then you know coming and complaining later like my sisters don't want to play with me you think? And how easy would it have been for Israel and Saul in particular to hear the, this, the news of what's happening in Jabesh Gilead and just say, well, it sounds like the chickens are coming home to roost. You should have thought about this when you didn't come out for, to us earlier. Why should all of Israel go and help you and go and try to fight Ammon when you wouldn't even come out for us? It's a people undeserving of redemption, but yet this is a people who receive it. Because when the Messiah comes, he flips the stories around. He transforms a people undeserving of grace, undeserving of redemption, undeserving of, of him to go out to battle for them, but yet they receive it and it brings his salvation. This is the Messiah that we are awaiting. This is why Saul gives us such an incredible, perhaps one of the, the most robust images in all the Old Testament, of all that Jesus will accomplish. The Christ who comes, and he comes to fight on your behalf. 
seeing you oppressed by an enemy that you cannot overcome, that you're willing to subdue to, the enemies that are too big to handle, and you cannot overcome them by yourself. But yet the Messiah has come on your behalf. A Messiah who's angry against evil and oppression. A Messiah who hates injustice, who hates the oppression of the world and the flesh and the devil. A Messiah who goes and he fights the battle on your behalf to deliver you who cannot fight yourself. A Messiah who comes in, in for, a, for a people not to be blinded in one eye, but, but have the, the veil cast upon all their vision. Obscured by the lies of the enemy. Unable to see past the, the, the cultural constraints. Unable to love God and walk in his ways. A people who have, who have rejected him and his ways again and again. And undeserving of his grace. But it's to you he comes. It's to you where we see the fullness of the Messiah who gives and pro provides for a people who offers redemption, who changes the stories that we would have. That rather than be marked by the shame and disgrace and what we did or did not do at our worst moments, no, we are now marked by the redemptive power and might of the one upon whom the Spirit rushes. Oh, rejoice in him. Take refuge in him. And as the world and the flesh and the devil rage against you, take refuge in such a Savior. He is good. He is strong. He is powerful. And he is worthy of our worship and our praise. Amen? Let's call up the, uh, the, the worship team and pray. Kind Father, I do ask that as your people are suffering here and all around the world, as they're fighting and, all, and, feel, uh, and people rage against them, and, and sometimes we feel so weak and so in need of, of, of someone who is able to stand up against them. Help your people to not turn to the same thing people that the world turns to. Let's not turn to, to strong, wicked men who happen to align with our interest at the moment. But help your people to take refuge in you, O oh Lord. That we would find our comfort in all that your Son has done. The one who has gone out before us. The one who has conquered sin and death and the devil who brings hope and life and joy to us. Holy Spirit, bring comfort upon your people here this morning. Bring your peace and your joy in our hearts. And in the midst of all things, Lord, glorify your name and the Son and the Spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.